Lord, we do need you. You said apart from you we can do nothing, and some days we are very aware of how true that is, and some days less aware. But Lord, we need you just to even breathe this morning to be alive and physically healthy enough to be here. And beyond just our physical needs, Lord, we need you to just deal with the demands and challenges and hardships of life every day. We need your strength and power and grace. Lord, we need you to preserve us in faith. Like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, that we're so thankful that Jesus intercedes for us and that keeps us in you. Lord, left to ourselves, we would fall apart and fall away, and you keep us, and so we're thankful for that. Lord, we need you to open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word that are there. We can't see them by ourselves. We need your spirit to show us what you are saying and work in our hearts in such a way that we respond appropriately to what we see. Can't do that apart from your enabling grace. And Lord, there might be some here this morning or listening online that need you in the first place to save them, to rescue them from sin and darkness and bring them to you, to light. They can't do that themselves. Lord, it's nothing less than a miracle to change a dead heart to a heart that comes to you. So we pray that that miracle would happen. So, Lord, we commit what is about to happen now to you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be moving among us. In Christ's name, amen. The headline read, In Cincinnati, Even Good Deeds Bring Punishment. It turns out Sylvia Staten put some coins into two expired parking meters so that people wouldn't get a ticket and that's violating a city ordinance against meter feeding so she got in trouble. Well in our text today Peter wants believers to be prepared for the possibility of suffering for righteousness sake. Doing what's right in God's sight might bring punishment or negative consequences and then he gives us instructions on how we are to respond when that happens. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 13 asks a question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And the expected answer is no one. No one usually harms you or bothers you when you do what's good. Even in our fallen world, there's usually a positive response when you do something good. So years ago, uh, our kids found a purse in the yard, and they took it over to the middle school across the street. And a little bit later, we got a thank you note and a $20 gift card. So even the world often appreciates and sometimes rewards those who do good. And so 
Peter assumes that's how it usually works. And he also assumes that believers are zealous for what is good. The word zeal means energetic and unflagging pursuit of an aim or devotion to a cause. And such zeal in doing good is one of the intended outcomes of our redemption. Go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The last part of verse 13. I'll just start with 13. (laughs) Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So Jesus' death was not only to take away our evil deeds, but to create a people for himself that will be characterized by zeal for good deeds. And Peter's assuming that's what's happening in the lives of the believers he's writing to. So the world normally doesn't have a problem with us abounding in good deeds, but he says that is not always going to be the case. So verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. And then verse 17, It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is Wrong. We saw a few weeks ago, he touched on that in chapter 2, verse 20. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So here's the reality of suffering for righteousness. We might experience opposition and negative Consequences of some kind for doing what is right in God's sight. Before, the world might just ignore us or write us off as kind of super religious people. But more and more, we need to be ready for the possibility of some pushback, if not hostility, if we maintain a high standard of integrity at work. Or if we take a stand for the life of unborn babies. Or if we share the good news of Jesus Christ as the only one who can rescue us from the ruin of sin. Taking our stand for righteousness sake, sharing the message of Christ will be more and more unwelcome in our culture. And experiencing negative reactions will become more and more unavoidable. And so Peter wants us to know that. Peter wants us to be ready for that. He wants us to be aware of the reality that we might suffer for the sake of righteousness. And he also gives us some instructions for how we are to respond when that happens. So first, consider yourselves blessed. So verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now that might not be our first reaction We might get upset, or we might feel sorry for ourselves. It just doesn't seem right that we did the right thing, and we're getting some kind of negative response to it. 
But Peter says, no, you're blessed. Blessed means truly happy in the fullest sense of the word because we enjoy God's favor and approval. He'll say it again in chapter 4, verse 14, if you want to turn over the page. Chapter 4, verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, remember, reviles, verbal abuse, just harsh language coming at you for the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ, you are blessed, truly happy, in the full sense of the word, because God's favor is on you, because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. And then Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Peter would have been there to hear it, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So we will need God's grace to have that kind of a perspective. Our thinking will need to be transformed to see opposition and persecution and pushback as a time of experiencing God's presence and blessing in a special way. Peter's not just an armchair quarterback in this. He knows this blessing firsthand. Go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. So you remember they were imprisoned and then released and warned. And then in verse 40, after... Some people wanted to kill them for preaching about Jesus. Uh, A more level-headed person named Gamaliel stood up and calmed people down. So verse 40 says, Then they took his advice, Gamaliel's advice, let's not kill him. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. (laughs) They beat them with whips and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Isn't that something? Not, can you believe what they just did? Or, I'm going to go find a lawyer. Or, any of the, you know, let's have a pity party together. Any of those things. They're rejoicing. Can you believe it? We have the honor of suffering shame for the name of Jesus. And we'll need grace in that moment to do that. You don't have the grace for that today if you don't go through that today. But that's what we want to do. We're blessed. We can be rejoicing in that. Second instruction, do not fear. So back in 1 Peter 3, the rest of verse 14 says this. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be Troubled. Well, Peter also knew firsthand that it's easy to be intimidated by other people. So, in Sunday school, we were going to talk about Peter's denial of Christ three times. And the first time he does, he's intimidated by a servant girl. And I don't know about you, I always think of Peter as just kind of this big, burly, tough fisherman. And then you think of a servant girl... And that's all it took for him to bail and to say, I don't know this man. So he knows firsthand what we have all experienced, right? <laughs> With relatives or coworkers or whoever else. 
there's this opportunity we could say something about our relationship with Jesus and we're like, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make this awkward. I mean, there's a thousand things that come in our heads. So we know what it's like to be intimidated. Peter knows what it's like to be intimidated. And he says, don't be worried and troubled about how people might react to you. Don't be fearful about what people might think of you or be fearful of what they might do to you. And he's quoting from Isaiah 8, verse 12. And of course, there are some other verses that could strengthen our faith against the fear of other people. So let's look at a few of those. Psalm 27, verse 1. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Starting in verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. So there are times when David, this courageous Man is afraid, and what he does when he is afraid is put his trust in God. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. Then down to the end of verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Sounds very much like Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? And that doesn't mean nobody will ever be against us. It means nobody can ultimately prevail against us if God is for us as our God. Third, instead of fearing people in our hearts, we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Verse 15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify means to set apart, to regard as unique and supremely above all others. And so we are to recognize, not just intellectually, but in our hearts, Jesus is Lord. Just yesterday I had a conversation with a brother and uh, we we're talking about some of the crazy stuff that's going on in our country these days. And we tried to bring it around to, here's the good news. <laughs> Jesus is on the throne. And this dear brother said, Jesus is king right now. Not someday, which is also true. <laughs> his reign, his kingship will be acknowledged by all. But Jesus is king, ruling at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth right now. He's sovereign ruler over all things. And a day is coming when every knee will bow and acknowledge that he is the Lord. And a part of recognizing Jesus as Lord in our hearts includes knowing that he is therefore in complete control of everything, both in this world and in our lives. Russ kind of made an allusion to that earlier. We might not understand it, but he's reigning, he's governing. 
right now in our lives and that we therefore can trust ourselves and our situation to his care. Fourth, be ready to explain your hope. The rest of verse 15 says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter's already mentioned hope a few times in this letter. We've sung a couple songs about hope already this morning. Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So hope is one of the themes in First Peter. If you're familiar with Warren Wiersbe's set of commentaries on the New Testament, it's be this, be that, like be right is Romans, be rich is Ephesians. His book on First Peter is be hopeful because he's picking up this theme of hope that's just going through this letter. And so now Peter's saying, be ready to explain your hope. Hope is not merely wishing that something good will happen in the future, which is how we typically use the word. So if I say, I hope it's a nice weather, a nice day for a picnic on Saturday, there's no guarantee it will be nice. It might be a beautiful day. It might rain. We just can't know with any certainty ahead of time. And hope in the New Testament is much more solid. It is a confident expectation of something good in the future, especially the ultimate good of experiencing fullness of joy in the presence of God forever in heaven. That's our ultimate hope. Because God has promised it. Go to Titus chapter 2. Excuse me, Titus verse 2 of chapter 1. Titus 1, verse 1 and 2. Here we go. We'll get it. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope, confident expectation of a future good called eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. So what is eternal life? Do you remember how Jesus defines it in John 17, 3? He tells us, this is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So eternal life is enjoying a relationship with God and with Jesus that begins in this life and continues forever and ever in heaven. And our hope of experiencing that in the future is certain. It's sure because God himself has promised it and it is impossible for God to lie. So we're told in Hebrews 6. Titus says he cannot lie. And Hebrews 6 says it's impossible for God to lie. Our hope includes the confidence that pain and suffering and sorrow and evil do not have the last word. As Randy Elkhorn puts it, hope is believing that one day, even if today is not that day, that God will set all things right. Put that on your plaque. Or speaking of plaques, we have a plaque in our house that says, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. This is not your best life now. But let the reader understand that reference. That's your best life. Forever. With God. In fullness of joy. In his presence. That's the best. Not anything this world can give us. So, if we have a living hope in the right things in our hearts, it will make a big difference in our lives. It will be a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls through all the troubles and losses that we will go through. And Peter assumes our hope is making such an obvious difference in our lives that other people will not only notice it, but ask us about it. So, this is from... John Piper, he's asking the, answering the question, how is our hope evident to others? And this is what he says. The main reason people ask for an explanation of our hope is because though we are losing something or suffering something, they see that our joy is not collapsing in spite of that loss. And then they compute. Now, if I lose my health, or my esteem in the community, or my security for the future. I get mad or depressed. So this person must be hoping in something different than what the world offers. I will ask them. People ask us about our hope when they see us in crisis, suffering, loss, persecution, or rejection, where we maintain our hope, faith, and love. And they're perplexed at where our strength is coming from, because as far as they're concerned, our future looks very bleak. And that is when we can say, no, my future is not bleak. Even if I have cancer, or just lost my job, or just lost a child, that's because God works all things together for my good. He is infinitely sovereign and loving, and my hope is in Him. So, for example, let's say there's a crisis at work. The future looks uncertain at best, if not gloomy. But instead of panicking and despairing about what might happen like everybody else around you, you have hope. Not just because you're an optimist, but because as 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, God has given us good hope by grace. That's where our hope comes from. We're born again to a living hope, and God gives us good hope 
by grace. So we don't manufacture hope any more than we manufacture faith. It's a gift of God's grace that we've been born again to a living hope. You don't know what the future holds any more than anybody else does, but the difference is you know who holds the future. And so a coworker might just ask, why are you so calm? What makes you tick? Why aren't you freaking out like everybody else? That's an opportunity to follow 1 Peter 3.15. Or in the hospital or a doctor's office, the test results are not what you would have voted for. The prognosis is not encouraging. But you're not shaken. And a nurse might ask you, why aren't you afraid? And I'm thinking of a friend of Angela and mine that we've known. It will be 47 years this fall. We went to college with them. We went to seminary with them. We've been to their house. They've been, I think, to our house. And uh, he just died last weekend of cancer at the age of 64. And yet, as you read his emails, especially like the last couple before he knew he was going to die soon because the doctor said, there's nothing more we can do. So his last email was 11 days before he died. And he basically said, the verse he's trying to live by is Philippians 1.20, that whether by life or by death, Christ might be magnified through my body either way. Well, if you have that kind of hope, I'm guessing a nurse or a doctor or somebody's going to notice that's different than the way I would react if I had pancreatic cancer and only had a few weeks to live. So our hope gets people's attention. Ralph Gustafson is a gentleman from our church family years ago. Some of you will remember him. He was in a conversation with another guy, and Ralph was talking about God's goodness in his life. And the other person told him afterwards, I'd give anything to have 10% of what you have. Isn't that something? There was something so distinctive about Ralph's testimony about God's goodness in his life, his confidence in God. I just want 10% of that. I'm not even asking for all of it. I just give anything to have 10% of that kind of confidence that you have in this God of yours. And Peter tells us always to be ready to make a defense. For our hope. The word he uses is the word that gives us the word apologetics, which doesn't mean apologizing for being a Christian. It means making a case or providing reasons, giving a clear explanation of the hope that we have. And we won't always get advance notice that someone's going to ask us to give an account. So the story I think of on that verse is uh, years ago. Angela and I went to a funeral, and then we went over to her sister's house afterwards. And uh, out of the blue, her brother-in-law says, So Dave, what's the Baptist philosophy on death? (laughs) What kind of question is that? I mean, (laughs) it's not a philosophy. It's not particularly Baptist. I mean, it's just like... There's so many weird things about that question. But it was an opportunity to explain 
biblical hope. And Peter's saying we need to be know what we believe about our hope in Christ. We know why we believe it. Be ready to share that whenever anyone might ask us about it. And he adds, don't forget to explain your hope with appropriate gentleness and reverence. And last, Peter calls us to keep a good conscience. Back in 1 Peter verse 16 and 17. And keep a good conscience. Why? So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. As we've seen before, again and again in this letter of 1 Peter, our calling is always to do what is right in God's sight, no matter what, and trust that God will see that we come out right. We just keep seeing that in 1 Peter. Our job is to do what's right. God will see that we come out right. And Peter says, even though you are being reviled, why are you being reviled? For your good behavior in Christ. Not your being something dumb. Good behavior in Christ. Something you're doing that's positive and appropriate and right because you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to get bad-mouthed for. And Peter says, hey, you need to know that could very well happen. It could be the will of God for that to happen. God is going to protect you necessarily from negative pushback against doing good things for the sake of Christ. But he wants us to know that a day will come, maybe in this life, but if not in this life, on the last day, when those who speak evil of our good will be put to shame. Well, as we close... What are you hoping in? Not just for happiness in this world, but for eternal happiness in the world to come. I talked to a young man a couple weeks ago. He shared with me how someone asked him, on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that you would go to heaven? He said, 5 or 6. He said, I was better than a lot of people, but I knew I wasn't, like, perfect. What would you say? On a scale of 1 to 10, going to heaven, being in God's presence forever. If God is showing you your answer falls short, first acknowledge, I have no good reason to hope for heaven. Ephesians 2 says, We were without hope and without God in this world. Why? (laughs) Because I'm a guilty sinner. I'm unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. I have zero hope of making it to heaven based on who I am and who he is. Romans 3, 10 through 12 spells that out very clearly. It says, there is none Righteous, right in God's sight, perfectly acceptable before God. Not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So see where we all start? 
we're, we fall short. We're not righteous. We're not good. God is perfectly righteous and perfectly good. And so there's no hope of us getting connected. Well, you might say, well, what about the good things I do? What about going to church this morning? And we need to acknowledge all my attempts to earn God's acceptance are false hope. A lot of people put their hope in those things, but it's a false hope. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not according to works we have done in righteousness. It's not about what we do, what we try, what we work for. That's a false hope. No one ever gets to heaven by their performance or accomplishments. And so we trust in Jesus as our only hope. We put all our trust in what he has done on behalf of sinners. Believing he died as a substitute, taking our sins on himself. Next Sunday, Lord willing, will be in verse 18. The very next verse says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. That's the verse we'll be looking at next Sunday, Lord willing. And we believe that he rose again from the dead, showing that our debt of sin has been paid completely and forever. We began, or Peter begins in chapter 1, verse 3, with we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why there's such a thing as living hope that's solid and sure and that's an anchor because it's grounded on nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so I'll give Peter the last word here. This is Acts 4.12. He says, There is salvation in none, no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you're the only name. You're the only one. You're the only way to God. And I pray, first of all, for anyone who's never put their hope and trust in you, that even today they would realize how hopeless they are apart from you. How hopeless it is to try to gain your favor by what they try to do. That they would put all their confidence in your death and your resurrection. And Lord, for those of us whom you have saved by grace and given good hope by grace, Lord, I pray our hope would be evident to others. Lord, it would be making such a difference in our own lives and how we deal with troubles and problems and setbacks that other people would notice and want to ask us why we have this hope, that you would give us opportunities to share the good news of Christ with them. So we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're going to stand and close.